John chapter 9. Should old acquaintance be forgot and never come to mind? Should old acquaintance be forgot and old lang syne? For old lang syne, my dear, for old lang syne. We'll take a cup of kindness yet for old lang syne. Well, maybe you and the friends and family around you sang these verses, I don't know, 11 hours ago. (laughs) It's one of those songs that we sing, it's catchy, but I don't know if we know what it means, but we just sing it anyway. Most interpret this song as a song to remember old friends and to remember good times. Old Lang Syne roughly means old times sake. And as we come to John chapter nine, we encounter a man who probably couldn't have sung Old Lang Syne very well on January 1st. This is a man who was born blind. This was a man who begged for food, a man who didn't have old acquaintances, a man who didn't have any good days of old to remember, a man who didn't have a cup of kindness. So maybe you look at yourself and back at 2022 and you say, well, I can really relate to this man in John 9. Well, if that's you, friend, be encouraged that Jesus deals with real and with raw people But whether or not our lives look like this man from John 9, well, we will see that we all have the same need as this man in John 9. So please follow along as I read it. It's a little bit longer of a passage than we normally read, so just bear with me. But when we're all done, I'm going to say this is God's word. If you agree and are thankful, would you say thanks be to God? John chapter 9. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is not this the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus, made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and washed. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been formerly blind. Now it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God. For he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who was a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. 
His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been born blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Ever since the world began, has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind? If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin and you would teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Well, when we come to God's word each week, we want to expose what's there and not impose what we want to be there. Each week, our regular diets, we want God's word to set the agenda for us, not for our agenda to set the agenda for us. We want to submit the shape and emphasis of the biblical passage, uh, we, or we want to submit the shape and emphasis of the sermon, rather, to the shape and emphasis of the biblical passage. So what is the shape and emphasis of John chapter nine? We could sum it up briefly, the whole chapter like this. Jesus's healing of a physically blind man should give us hope and should open our eyes to our own spiritual blindness. And when that really happens, we will come to and cling to the son of God who does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. We're going to walk through John chapter 9 with three questions. Why is this man blind? Are the healing and the healer true? And what if the healing and the healer are true? Friends, it's my prayer that as a result of our time, you would know the author of all being more deeply. You would resemble the perfection of all excellency more closely. As a result of our time, I pray that you would enjoy the source of all happiness more sweetly. Question number one. Why is this man blind? We're looking at the very first paragraph of the chapter, verses one to seven. Before we answer this, let's remember where we are in the book. Jesus is in the city of Jerusalem. It was around the time of a major feast called the Feast of Booths. It's just after that. Now, back in chapter eight, he has gone back and forth with the religious leaders debating about who he is and who the people of God are. And Jesus keeps on repeating the claim that he is equal with God. And he repeats that so much that eventually it gets him kicked out of the temple. 
Now, Jesus is still in Jerusalem after he gets kicked out of the temple, and he encounters a man who he sees is blind from birth. We'll find out later that this man's parents confirm that he has been blind from birth. The first words spoken in chapter 9 don't actually come from the blind man. They don't come from Jesus. Notice, they come from his disciples. The disciples ask our first big question. Why is this man blind? But notice when you see when they ask this question, they supply a couple of possible answers. Why is this man blind? Well, the disciples assume that this man must be blind either because of his sin or because of his parents' sin. But Jesus points them in a different direction. He gives a different explanation. Jesus says that this man's blindness was not the result of a specific sin. Not the result of a specific sin. Now, there are cases when this does happen. Just a few chapters earlier in John chapter 5, the man who was paralyzed for 38 years seems to be paralyzed because of his own sin. Now, while there are cases when that does happen, this isn't true in every case. In the case of this blind man, his blindness was the effect of sin in general, not sin in specific. So we have to go back further, all the way to Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve rebel against God, and all of a sudden there is a separation between creator and creatures. And that separation unleashes curse, not just upon the creatures, but upon all creation. This is why Romans 8.22 says that all creation groans, longs to be restored, to be made right. So with this curse of the fall comes effects of sin in general. Effects like death and disease and despair and disaster. This is why this man is blind not because of a specific sin, but because it's an effect of sin in general. But verse three, Jesus adds another explanation or purpose of this man's blindness. Look at John nine, verse three. He says, so that the works of God might be displayed in him. I don't know if you know the the old PBS painter, Bob Ross. Um, Bob Ross is beloved, not just for his Afro, Uh, but he's beloved for taking what appears to be dark blobs on a canvas, what he calls happy accidents, and he brings them to life. He makes them into something beautiful. And no matter how many times you see Bob Ross do this, you end up amazed at him. Why is this man blind? It's like Jesus says that his blindness is a dark blob on a canvas that will serve to demonstrate him, the light of the world, in a unique way. Jesus not only will bring light to his blindness, but in the process show how amazing he is. So compare with what what Jesus says here in John 9, verse 3, with what he'll say later in John 11, verse 4. Jesus learns of Lazarus's sickness. He says the purpose of it. He says this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So why is this man blind? Well, it's because it's an effect of sin in general. He's blind also because it's a dark stage where Jesus, the light of the world, can shine brightly. I think those answers, those explanations, those purposes of this man's blindness, I actually think those are really helpful. These two answers, you know, in life we have trials and it's like our ship is on waves. These might be two posts that we hold on to in the midst of those. Effects of sin in general, and trials being a, a, ta- a dark stage where the light of the world can shine brightly. 
I think this is, can actually help us in four ways. Just really quickly, if we could apply this explanation and purpose of this man's blindness in four ways. Number one, th- this explanation helps us because it helps us start to make sense of the sin and tragedy that happens to us. It can help us start to make sense of the sin and the tragedy that happens to us. This big question that we're asking, why is this man blind? You know, I think that's actually another form of a question you and I ask all the time. It's a form of a question, why do bad things happen to good people? This explanation in John 9 keeps us from giving an overly simplistic answer. There is not always a one-to-one correlation between sinful deed and tragic outcome. Now, while that should keep us from condemning ourselves too quickly, we shouldn't examine ourselves too casually. Because man's rebellion against God has brought curse on God's creation, and each one of us are rebels against God. Not just we have done rebellious things, but this is the bent of our heart, our, our hearts. Our hearts are bent away from God and toward ourselves. Jesus understands this. Jesus understands this even when people ask him in Luke chapter 13, why did this tragedy happen? Why did this awful thing happen to these people? Jesus tells them how they should respond. He says very sobering words. He says, no, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. I've heard it said before that there's only one time a bad thing happened to a good person and he volunteered. For those who trust in him on the cross, Jesus has taken the curse that they deserve for their rebellion against God. Now there is therefore no more condemnation, no more curse for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why is this man blind? It's an effect of sin in general. It's a dark stage where the light of the world might shine brightly. This explanation, number two, can help us in a second way. It could give us hope. Friend, could it be that God has permitted a trial in your life for this same reason that he permitted this man's blindness? Could it be that God has permitted a trial in your life so that Christ would be made known to you in a new or in a deeper way? That Christ's power would be made perfect in your weakness? Christian, remember that through Christ, God is now your redeemer and your father. And if that's true, then God is still your redeemer and your father, even when he allows you to feel the effects of a fallen world. So when trials come, instead of just asking, why did this happen to me? Instead of just asking, how do I get out of this as quickly as possible? In Christ, you are now secure enough to ask, how might God's glory ultimately shine through this time in my life? Well, you might be blind to the specifics of that, but the Lord allows us to see his promise. That's enough to walk by faith. This explanation and purpose of this man's blindness helps us in a third way. It gives us a preview. It gives us a preview that Jesus is bringing a new creation. He is restoring what was lost in Eden. Most commentators conclude that that's why he uses mud and puts it on this man's eyes. That just as God formed man out of the dust, so Jesus uses dust in bringing new creation. And when he heals this blind man, Jesus previews in part what he will do later in full. Jesus doesn't just allow our sins to be forgiven. Jesus pushes back all the effects of sin in the world. This is what he previews here. This is what he will do when he returns. 
This is what we sing in Joy to the World. We just sang it last week. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. What does Jesus do? He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. One day there will be no more blindness or disease or death. Number four, this explanation and purpose helps us because it is a summons to us. It is a summons to us. Jesus says in verse four that we must work while it is day. Day refers to his time on earth before his death. For his earthly ministry, his father gave his son works to do in order to confirm his identity as the light of the world. But it's interesting how Jesus says we at the beginning of verse four. We, us, Jesus's followers, while we are still here on earth, before we go home to heaven, we have an opportunity to do good to others and for the light of the world to shine through us. We are an earthly outpost of the new creation that Jesus is bringing. We, us, Jesus's followers, we get to be part of the preview. Our lives, our community together should look like heaven. We should act like the people do in heaven. We get to be a postcard, a billboard for heaven. Through us, God can begin to roll back the effects of sin, the the curse on the earth. So maybe, friend, this year, how might your life preview the peace and the holiness and the restoration that is in heaven? This year, how might the Lord use you to bless those who deeply feel creation's curse? The Apostle Paul puts it like this in Romans 13, 12. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Well, we're gonna move on to our second big question. Verse seven closes with the blind man going to the pool of Siloam. He washes and he sees. One commentator says that Jesus, the sent one, tells the man to wash in the pool that's called sent, and the blind man also becomes a sent one. The next big question becomes, are the healing and the healer true? Did this really happen? What do we say about the guy who did it? Well, the, blind, the former blind man and the one who healed him now come under scrutiny. And this scrutiny spans most of the chapter from verse 8 to verse 34. And each round of examination boils down to one question. Are the healing and the healer true? Let's give an overview and then we're going to make some observations. An overview of the examination and then a few observations. So the examination of the healing and the healer breaks down into four scenes. This corresponds to the four paragraphs from verses 8 to 34. The first scene involves the blind man and his neighbors. This is in verses 8 to 12. His neighbors want to know whether or not he is the same guy who they saw before begging for food. And they want to know how he was healed. They want to know where is the one who healed him. Again, it boils down to they want to know if the healing and the healer are true. When the blind man responds, he says, yes, I am the same guy. Jesus is the one who healed me, and I don't know where he is. That brings us to scene two, verses 13 to 17. This involves the former blind man and the Pharisees. They also want to know our big question, are the healing and the healer true? They ask the former blind man, how are you healed? And when the former blind man points to Jesus, 
The Pharisees want to know, is Jesus a sinner or is he a righteous man? They also want to know, a former blind man, what do you think about this Jesus fellow? Well, the blind man responds that Jesus is a prophet. Perhaps he connects Jesus with someone like Elijah, who back in 2 Kings told the leprous king Naaman to wash in the Jordan River, and then he was healed. The blind man thinks Jesus is a prophet, but the Pharisees, at least most of them, call Jesus a sinner. They call him that because Jesus healed on the Sabbath day. Now, if you've read the Gospel of John, you know that this is a controversy that has popped up before. By healing this blind man, Jesus didn't break the written law of God. Jesus broke the unwritten traditions that the Pharisees added to the law of God. That brings us to scene three, just overview of the chapter, verses 18 to 23. This scene involves the Pharisees and the blind man's parents. Pharisees ask mom and dad, hey, is this your son? Was he really blind from birth? In other words, is this healing true? Mom and dad say, yes, this is our son. He was born blind. But then they ask him, how was he healed then? The Pharisees cast their reel into the water and see if they can get a bite. You know what they are really asking. They really want to know if their mom and dad will talk about Jesus. So verse 22, John tells us that mom and dad can sense that the Pharisees are fishing and they don't bite. They know that they'll get kicked out of the synagogue if they speak favorably about Jesus. So it's fourth down in inches and mom and dad punt on the question. (laughs) They plead the fifth. They defer to their son. And that brings us to scene four, this last round of examination, verses 24 to 34. The Pharisees are back with the former blind man. And and by now they've just grown frustrated. Instead of just inquiring in good faith, now they intimidate him. They aren't interested in the truth. They want the former blind man to get in line. You need to sign off in the predetermined explanation that we've decided. But the former blind man doesn't budge. He sticks with what he can't deny is true, that he was blind, but now he sees, and that's because of Jesus. Well, as the scene continues, the Pharisees attempt to pit Jesus against Moses. This is a debate that they've brought up time and again. Like Jesus has already explained in John 5, verses 39 to 40. If the Pharisees really understood what Moses wrote, they would know that Moses wrote about Jesus. So you see, the Pharisees thought that if they added some extra parameters around the law of God, then that they would never even get close to breaking it. But the Pharisees misunderstood What they needed were not new parameters. What they needed were new hearts. They needed the Messiah to come and fulfill the law that they had broken and to give them new hearts that have desire to keep the law and ability to do the law. Well, by the end of scene four, the Pharisees still don't get it, but they do concede that this man was born blind. They do this when they say you were born in utter sin. In verse 34, essentially they say, we know that you were blind from birth. And when they admit this, they admit that the healing must be true. But as for the healer, well, the Pharisees are too stubborn to admit that he is true also. So there's the overview, verses 8 to 34. Let's just return to our big question. Are the healing and the healer true? In short, yes. Both are true. 
But there's an irony in this chapter. The irony is that the blind man sees their true and the seeing people are blind to the truth. That's the irony. Now from this, I just want to make a couple observations about people who are blind to Jesus and people who see Jesus. Just from this chapter, John 9, what, why are people blind to Jesus and what characterizes those who do see Jesus? I'm going to make three observations. One, pride blinds people from seeing Jesus. Two, fear of man blinds people from seeing Jesus. Three, those who see Jesus, savor Jesus, speak of Jesus, and side with Jesus. Observation one from John 9, pride blinds people from seeing Jesus. Yes, pride, that churchy word that you and I know to avoid, but this passage reminds us just how subtle pride can be. It reminds us that pride can look respectable. It reminds us that pride can look moral. It reminds us that pride can look polite. Pride can even look religious. The Pharisees were upstanding men in their community. The Pharisees were well-regarded by most people. But the Pharisees' functional mindset is one of self-regard, looking out for number one. It's one of self-sufficiency, that I am enough. So when the Pharisees uphold their own teachings, when the Pharisees refuse to hear any good words about this upstart Jesus, what the Pharisees really say is that I know enough, I'm good enough, and I've done enough. And I won't hear otherwise. No amount of evidence will change my mind. It's not that they don't have enough to believe in Jesus. It's that they don't want to believe in Jesus. Jesus threatens their polished image. Jesus threatens their comfortable lifestyle. Jesus threatens their influential position. And they will have none of it. Their pride blinds them from seeing Jesus. My friends, the same pride blinds us also. I, I hope that you see that. I've, I've referred to this before. I just think it's so good. Pastor Tim Keller calls this type of pride being middle class in spirit. You, you've heard Jesus say, blessed are the poor in spirits. This type of pride is being middle class in spirit. Middle class in spirit means that you work hard. You're respectable. You're moral. You might even have some outward show of religion. You functionally say in your heart, I know enough, I've done enough, I'm good enough, and you know what, doggone it, I can handle things on my own. When you start to think that God owes you for the good that you've done, you start to believe that the comfort and lifestyle that you have are from your own industry and your own energy. And when that's questioned, or when that's threatened, that polite veneer you put on fades very quickly. You become defensive and combative, Friend, let me ask you, how can anyone see Jesus with that mindset? Pride blinds us from seeing Jesus. Observation two, fear of man blinds people from seeing Jesus. In verse 24, the Pharisees asked the former blind man's parents, hey, how does your son now see? Well, they feign ignorance. We don't know. Ask him. He could speak for himself. Was that true? Did they really not know how their son was healed? It wasn't true. They did know. 
They knew it was Jesus. They just decided not to say. Why? Verse 22, because they feared the Jews, that is the religious authorities. Now, are we saying that they shouldn't have been afraid of them? Well, of course not. They're worthy of being afraid of. Being kicked out of the synagogue was effectively being ostracized from the community, being cut off from all meaningful relationships. Those were the stakes. Those are stakes worthy of being scared of. What we are saying, though, is that there is something that his parents should have feared more. More than being afraid of missing out on the approval of people, his parents should have been afraid of missing out on the approval of God. My friend, if all you can focus on is getting approval of people, you will be blind to Jesus. Without Jesus, friend, you might get all the things that you dream of. You might get your accolades, you might get recognition, you might get status, but without Jesus, you won't get God. You can get all those things, but you won't get God. And all those other things will fade. And he won't. So yes, there is a cost to following Jesus, but the cost is worth it. And maybe you've heard this quote from missionary Jim Elliott before. He says, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Observation three. What about those who do see Jesus? We can observe this. Those who, believe, those who see Jesus, savor Jesus, side with Jesus, and speak of Jesus. I love the second sentence of verse 25. This very simple testimony. He says, one thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see Oh, friends, would we pray that God gives us this simple, deep-hearted testimony that God would erase from us formal, nominal Christianity, that God would rescue us from lifeless, empty, and formal religion, that we would be those who actually see and savor Christ. And those who see Christ, those who know Christ, savor Christ because they have been changed by Christ. My friend, maybe this is the key to the Christian life that you've been missing. Maybe you're silent about Jesus. Maybe you don't side with Jesus. Maybe you don't speak about Jesus because you don't savor Jesus. But I remind you, would you remember what you were like before Jesus? That before Jesus, you and I would have to be afraid of God. And now because of Jesus, we are accepted and loved by God. But before Jesus, we would have every reason to, to hate God. But, but now because of Jesus in our place, we actually can love God. Before Jesus, we loved sin. After Jesus, those who truly see him, we, we would hate sin and, and love God. We savor Jesus. Savoring Jesus and what he had done for him is what led this man to side with Jesus and to speak with Jesus, even in the face of opposition. Brothers and sisters, we, we sang our testimony this morning. Th those who trust in Christ, we sang our testimony. The question is, do we savor it enough that we speak our testimony and live it out? Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I rose, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. 
My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him my living head and clothed in righteousness divine. Well, people have talked a lot about Jesus throughout verses 8 to 34, but Jesus hasn't been here since verse 7. And he arrives on the scene again in verse 35. Look with me there. Just when the healed man gets kicked out of the synagogue for siding with Jesus, Jesus finds him. They might cast him out, but Jesus has said that whoever comes to him, he will never cast out. They might have cast him out of the synagogue, but Jesus brings him to himself, the one who is the true temple, the true person where God resides on earth. Jesus now interacts with the healed man again and the Pharisees over here. And the final paragraph answers a final big question for us. What if the healing and the healer are true? What if they are true? Well, if the healing and the healer are true, then we must believe in Jesus and worship Jesus. That's what happens in verses 35 to 38. Look with me again as I read them. Do you believe in the Son of Man, Jesus says? The man answers, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Now this man displays the true sight that has been given to him. True sight isn't just to see physically, it is to see spiritually. True sight is to see Jesus for who he is and what he has done and worship him. True sight is to see and believe and worship Jesus as the son of man. This is the title Jesus uses for himself here. It goes back to the Old Testament, to Daniel chapter 7. It refers to a figure who has eternal authority, a figure who is distinct from and yet equal to God himself, the ancient of days. So when Jesus uses son of man for himself, he claims to be the one who uniquely shows us what God is like and the one who uniquely brings us back to God after being separated from him. This healed man who believes in Jesus and who worships him, he doesn't even yet fully know what the son of man will do for his people. The son of man won't just be cast out of the synagogue. The son of man will be cast out of God's presence. The Son of Man will take the outcome that you and I deserve for our rebellious pride and unbelief and idolatry. But Jesus will be cast out so that we can be brought in. Today, friend, I urge you, if you do not believe in and worship Jesus, leave behind notions that you are good enough or have done enough. Leave behind what you cannot keep And trust the one who heals and forgives, and you will not lose him. So, the healing and the healer are true, and that brings faith, and that brings worship. And what Jesus said way back in verses 4 to 5 now comes true. This dark blob on the canvas has been transformed and redeemed into a beautiful painting. Not only is his sight restored, but his life is reclaimed and the painter is glorified. He is given the worship that he deserves. But just to close, there is an appendix to the story. Jesus makes one final point to the Pharisees who overhear him and the healed man talking. He says that only those who know they are blind 
will see him for who he is and believe in him and worship him. You see, the Pharisees are falsely self-assured. Verse 41, Jesus explains that the nature of their problem is that they claim that they can see, but they're actually blind. Jesus recognizes the same mindsets we already recognized in them. That by claiming to see, the Pharisees claim that they know enough, they claim that they've done enough, they claim that they're good enough. But here's the irony. You won't see Jesus until you know you are blind. You won't see Jesus and thereby worship him and believe in him until you know you are blind. Proverbs 26 verse 12 puts it like this. Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. You won't see, you won't ask for sight until you know you're blind. This is how it works for George Bailey. Uh, maybe you're like me, you have It's a Wonderful Life fresh on your mind, uh, Christmas time. Uh, what was George Bailey's breaking point? It was when he realized that he was bankrupt that he was responsible and that there was nothing he could do about it. All the good that George had done, whether it was helping his brother or helping the pharmacist or helping his dad or helping his town, all the good that George had done could not save him. He became, he became just like this man in John 9, a blind beggar. And what made George Bailey's life so wonderful by the end of the movie? Well, it wasn't what he had done for himself. It was what was done for him. All the people came to bail him out. Friend, the same could be true of you. Yes, on your own, you are blind. But now what can make your life so wonderful is not what you, is not what you do for yourself, but what Christ has done for you. And you can see. On your own, you too are like this blind man and you cannot lastingly or truly sing old Lang Syne. Old acquaintances will depart. Good times will fade. Our own cup of kindness will run dry. But knowing that only brings us to sing a new song, which we'll sing in just a few moments, to the same tune. It's called All Glory Be to Christ. And it goes like this. When on that day, the great I am, the faithful and the true, the lamb who was for sinners slain is making all things new. Behold, our God shall live with us and be our steadfast light. And we shall ere his people be. All glory be to Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, would you remind us and show us and open our eyes to the truth about you and to the truth about ourselves. That you are the light of the world. That you are the one who is good enough, who has done enough, who has lived the life we didn't live and died the death we deserve, bearing the curse of our rebellion. And would you open our eyes so that we may walk in your light and would you shine through us to others and be glorified in us today, this year, and for all eternity. In your name we pray, amen.